So, for the last time in a little while, let's turn to John 15. So we bring this summer series to a close. As you head to John 15, let me just say a word of thanks to uh, everyone who was part of summer community groups this year. I want to especially thank the leaders, um, Jessica Bufkin, Haley Miller, Bill Zito, Chris Cole, uh, who did a fantastic job uh, putting all of our content together. Um, Definitely a big thank you to them. And also, we had a couple of uh, subs jump in at different points. So thanks to uh, Haley Spell, make sure I get everyone, Haley Spell, Jamie Rabelais, Deshae Folger, and Emmett Brown, uh, who all jumped in and led that material at different points. Um, We had just a really great summer together. I hope that uh, it was good for you uh, on a number of levels. Uh, During that month of July, we've been going through John 15, uh, both here on Sunday mornings and also in those groups. And so today we come to the end of all of it. Um, John 15 is, uh, it kind of has uh, a both and effect on me. Like, in some ways, it's incredibly encouraging and uh, affirming of things. Um, here's Jesus like telling us, like, hey, um, we're connected to each other. Like, we, we abide in one another. We are, like, like, we're abiding in this room right now. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's kind of like our relationship. Like, we're, we're like one you abide in me, I abide in you, we're, we're connected. Just like the branch of a tree is connected to the trunk of the tree, where if you get in there, you really can't tell where one starts and the other one stops. Like, we're one. And the fruit that is produced in your life is because my life is flowing into your life, and your life is looking like, oh, yeah, this is, this is how I was created to live. I wasn't created to live full of pride and self-centeredness. I wasn't created to live with greed or lust or um, anger or all these kinds of things. Like those are all part of the brokenness that we all carry. Jesus is like, yeah, when you're connected to me and my life is flowing through your life, then your life bears fruit. It looks like it's supposed to look just like like a vineyard. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, but from me, you can do, you can do anything. And so it's so affirming to know that connection that I have to Jesus and the connection that like we all have to Jesus, that everyone who is in Christ is a new creation. Everyone who's in Christ is a branch connected to the same vine. And if you've ever seen a vineyard, it's a messy group of branches. And I think if we were to look around, we could all high five of like, we are some messy branches, right? Like our lives are not nice and neat and uh whatever, we try to present that way sometimes, but really, like, it's, we're kind of a mess. And because of Christ, that messy group of branches can produce beautiful fruit. And so, so it's just a, just a powerful passage. It's also a very hard passage, though, because he talks about things like pruning, that the God the Father is the keeper of the vineyard and he prunes away the things that do not belong. Well, they call that cleaning, cleaning the vines. Let's cut out the stuff that's not good for you. And so it's, it's kind of a hard passage because God is, is, is 
cutting things out of our lives that are not good for us, things that are not producing fruit, things that do not belong. He's saying, well, this isn't who you are, and this isn't who you are, and this isn't who you are. And pruning is not very fun for us. We don't really like it, all that. He talks about obeying his commandments. We don't really like to be commanded to do very much. However, it's this incredibly loving thing, just like parents do for their kids. It's saying like, hey, we're like, let's keep you away from things that are bad for you. And so it's a hard passage because it means that sometimes you have to deal with God taking things out of your life. But understanding that, oh, that's so that I can bear much fruit, so that I can be who I was created to be. Um, and so I want to read it, and I'm not going to recap all of the different points because there's just not time for that today. But let me just read it, and as I do, uh, if you're here for the first time, I apologize. Maybe you don't have quite the context, but if you've been around for a couple of weeks and all that, maybe as I read, different things will pop into your head. So let me, let me read, starting in verse 1. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish, it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's look at that last verse. I've, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy maybe full. Some of what I'm about to talk about, uh, I also talked about during the Broken Cisterns series last fall. But joy is like, it's one of the great themes of the Bible. In various forms, it's mentioned like 400 times in the Bible. Uh, joy though is, it's a little confusing because it's something that we feel. And so sometimes we kind of maybe put it in the wrong category. Like sometimes we will equate joy with happiness, but they're really not one and the same. Like you could be joyful and unhappy at the same, at the same time. Okay. So joy is not equated with happiness. Um, or sometimes we connect joy to like circumstances being favorable, but we shouldn't do that because you can be full of joy in the midst of terrible circumstances. Uh, and sometimes we think about joy with a certain like personality type, you know, like when I say like, who do you know that's full of joy? Like those kind of people who are just, they're like fun and exciting and bubbly and all that kind of stuff. 
You probably don't have me on your list, um, which hurts my feelings, but whatever. But that's, that's the problem is we think of like, oh, who, who, who expresses joy really well? And we kind of go toward personality types or how, is it, how it is expressed, you know, um, when really it's not about that at all uh, because joy is for every one of us and expressions vary a lot. Uh, and so if we're going to talk about biblical joy, a couple of things that we need to keep in mind. Uh, the, first, the first one is that joy, it begins with God. Like it's not a, that's not a human origin thing. It begins with him uh, right from the beginning of the Bible. Like when God is creating, uh, when the Father, Son, Spirit are like, like bringing things out of nothing just by speaking words, um, at each of those different stages of creation or the days of creation, God stops and says, this is good. That's, that's the joy of God. I know there's different debates about how seven literal days or how, you know, those kinds of things. But like, what if it was really slow? Because God just really enjoys creating things. Like, have y'all seen some of like the, the NASA pictures that have come out recently from these like incredible telescopes? Like, what if God was like, I just had a blast. So I took my sweet time. God is the most joyful being in the universe. John Orberg said that. And I don't know that we always think of God that way. Even we just talked about like at the, at the end when they tagged on the song about bringing our addictions and our failures and bringing them to the foot of the cross and that Jesus is waiting with open arms to us. I don't know that maybe we always think of him correctly, but from the very beginning, God is full of joy. Uh, there's different verses. You don't need to turn to them. We won't even put them all up on the screen, but like in Isaiah 62, it says that uh, as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, God rejoices over you. You ever been to a wedding and you got the, the bride and the groom on their wedding day and they just they couldn't glow any more than they are. They would just explode. And Isaiah's like, yeah, that's how God rejoices over you. It's like that. But not just on the wedding day. It's like this all the time thing. Um, Zephaniah 3.17 is a great joy verse. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I don't know if you surveyed the average person, but even to get more specific, the average Christian, like, do you feel like God just is just rejoicing over you? Do you feel like he um, is glad with you, about you, over you? I mean, sometimes the, like if we were to, uh, if we were to be like, hey, let's all go, let's take your phone out, go to the emoji list and pick the one that, what does God's face look like when he's looking at you? I don't know that we would pick one of the really joyful ones, would we? Maybe you would, I hope that you would, but I think a lot of times we kind of operate under this idea that God's kind of always disappointed with us, you know? Maybe that comes from parenting or teachers or coaches or something like that along the way, but the Bible paints a different picture that there is gladness when he looks at you. 
Paul says this in Romans 14. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Next chapter, he says this, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. When Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit, which I'll talk about later, joy is one of them. In Hebrews 12, it says that Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. How can the cross be a place where Jesus was joyful? Well, it's because God defines joy very differently than you and I do. As I said, it's not limited to a, a, a personality type or circumstances or even feelings. It's something more that's going on. In the Bible, all those 400 times where, where joy or rejoicing comes up, there's kind of a pattern that you can see. Um, rejoicing happens in the Bible whenever there's this realization that God has done something. That, you know, like that he kept, he kept a promise. Either they're realizing like, oh, God just kept his promise. Or they're like, let's rejoice for the fact that he kept a promise to our ancestors. You know, that kind of thing. This realization that God has answered a prayer, whatever it may be. Or this realization that God is doing something right now in our midst. That he is present and, and active among us. There is a joy that comes or joy in the confidence that God is going to do something in the future. It's one of my favorite things about Advent is that you are, we're, we're looking forward to what he will do. And it evokes this joy in us of knowing this world is not the end for us. That he has made promises that he has kept, is keeping, and will keep. And so it all comes down to this realization that God is with us. And not only is he with us, but he is all like he is for his sons and for his daughters. And so it is not about your behavior. It's not about your track record. It's not about your emotion or how you express it. It is this realization of God is here. He is with me. He is for me. And it doesn't matter if I've had a terrible week. He's still for me. It doesn't matter if I've been doing things that he, uh, like he says, are bad for me. If I've been sinning, he's still for you, that's why he loves you enough to bring conviction over those things. That's why he loves you enough to say, this is bad for you. I'm going to prune it out of your life. Quit returning to your, the same old stuff over and over and over again. It's terrible for you. It's killing you. It's not who you are. And that conviction can even be a joyful thing of like, wow, God loves me enough to break my heart sometimes. <clears throat> And so joy, it begins with God, comes from him. Now connected to what I was just saying, joy is, it is a relational thing, okay? There has to be a relationship there for joy to be there. Um, <clears throat> there's a, a lot of these thoughts come from uh, Jim Wilder, who wrote a, a book a bunch of people uh, have been reading in the last couple of years called The Other Half of Church. Um, but there has to be a relationship there. Uh, and he defines joy in this way, based on all the biblical stuff. He kind of like condenses it down. He says, joy is a response to someone who enjoys you and is glad to be with you. It's that realization that God is with me and he enjoys being with me. And I enjoy being with him. 
that he's bringing me grace and forgiveness and conviction and what, he's bringing me what I need and that is the most loving thing he can do for me is that realization that he is in our midst and he is active. So it's a response to someone who enjoys you and is glad to be with you. That's what makes it different from happiness, okay? Like an inanimate object can make you happy. Uh, if you love chocolate, a bar of chocolate can make you happy. But a bar of chocolate is not happy to see you, right? It does not smile at you. Joy is the response of when someone is happy to be with you. And so all of these things can make us happy in different ways, but they don't bring us joy. Only a relationship can bring us joy. And Jim Wilder is, uh, he's like a neuroscience guy, and he says that really the, the face is the key to joy. That that's how you know that someone is happy to be with you. That's how joy is evoked. And so if, uh, if you smile at someone, you're saying, uh, I enjoy you. Not like a polite smile, not like a soft smile, but like a smile. You know the difference. We're, we have these super processors that are decoding people's smiles. You know the difference between a smile of someone who enjoys you and someone who's being like cordial or polite or just being like a decent human being, right? Okay, nothing wrong with any of those things, but it's, you know, when someone lights up, you can interpret what their face is doing. So if you smile, it's like, I enjoy you. And if they smile back, they're like, I enjoy you too. And that's joy that is happening. That's that thing that you feel when you're like, oh, this person, this person is into me. Like, in a really like beautiful way. This person enjoys me and I enjoy this person. And so and it's not even just like the smile itself. It's the, it's the entire countenance. That's why we have all these muscles in our face and all this skin and how all this stuff works together that God created our faces to convey something. And he gave us eyes to interpret this. And our brains are like, this person enjoys me. This person is tolerating me, right? This person knows that they should know me from somewhere, but they don't really know exactly where, where it's from. Like we're able to, we can tell by, and we can read people, but that's, that's what's going on as we're interacting with each other. And so presence is really significant. But joy is what we're after. You ever walked into a room, there's a lot of strangers. So you're present with people and you're scanning the room and then you like lock eyes with the, someone who is like smiling at you, like waving you over. That's one of my personal pet peeves at a restaurant. Like if I'm there to meet a group of people and I walk in and like, I feel very capable of scanning the room and finding them. There's always that, that one person like pops up and they're like, we're over here. But they're happy to see you. They're like, come on, we're like, we're about to share a meal together. This is awesome. We're so glad that you're here. There, there is a joy that comes of like, oh, that person is awkwardly happy to see me. Just sit down. It's fine. You know? <laughs> There's a difference in a room full of strangers and then when you're with family, just different. And the joy that is evoked through us interpreting one another's facial expressions, that's how we communicate and how we receive. I really enjoy you. And when those faces sync up, joy, joy is happening in that moment, according to the neuroscience. 
So again, how would you describe God's face toward you? What is his countenance doing toward you? Do you think that God is smiling upon you? Do you think he is shaking his head at you? Does he have disappointed face? Does he have angry face? Does he have uninterested face? Is he looking at you, but his eyes are looking at someone else? Has he turned completely around because he's just fed up with you? Well, the Bible paints a picture of even in your worst moment, even in your most sinful, self-indulgent moment where you intentionally do the wrong thing, he's still looking at you. And he still takes great joy in you. And even if his heart is breaking because you're engaging in something that's bad for you, he's, he's, still, he's still with you. And you can look away all you want. But he's locked in, according to the Bible. We, we end our service every week speaking a blessing over each other. It talks about the face of God. In Numbers 6, verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. He's telling the priests every day, I want you to speak over the people of God so that they know that my face is shining upon them. And being gracious to them. That, I, that my countenance is not looking away. My countenance is not ashamed of looking down. My countenance is being lifted upon them and bringing shalom to them. In case they forget, you stand in front of the people and what the priests would do, you've heard me say this before, they, they, would, they would put their hands out like this, which forms a, uh, it looks kind of like Yahweh in Hebrew when they do like this, which is where Spock, uh, Leonard Nimoy got that from, by the way story and hold their hands out like this and they would speak that over the people of god and they would receive it and it says right there i will put my name on them that over and over and over again from that day all the way until this day this blessing has been spoken over the people of god like in case you've forgotten you're blessed and you're kept and the face of god is shining upon you and his countenance is being lifted upon you and he's bringing you grace and he's bringing you peace and let me Put that on you in case you've forgotten. And what that does to us when we receive it is called joy. God is happy with you and God enjoys you. Not only that, Jesus, in talking with his disciples on that Thursday night before he was crucified, three times he conveys things about joy to them. One is the verse that we're looking at right now, verse 11. In chapter 16, he says it this way. 
You also have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. No one can rob you of the face and countenance of God. No one can take away the fact that God is going to forgive you of your sins, restore your sonship and daughtership, bring you back into the family, a seat at the table. No one can steal it from you. If you want to reject it or pretend like it's not true or put your finger in your ears and deny it, that's a different matter, but no one's going to take it from you. The resurrection will secure it. And if you're here today and you you have never looked at Jesus and and seen him as the, the forgiving savior that comes to restore who God made you to be, you can have that. Like that could all be fixed today. You, in this very moment, you just tell him, I believe that you have come to save me that I could not save myself. And you laid your life down so that I could live forever. You tell him that. Saved by grace through faith. You don't have to do a bunch of works. You don't have to go to a class. You don't have to keep all the rules. You just have to believe that he's telling the truth and inviting you into life out of death. No one's gonna steal your joy from you. The next chapter in 17 Now I'm coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. It's like, hey, this joy is not, it's it's God's and he shares it with his people, but it's not supposed to stay here. There are people all around us that don't know that God enjoys them. That God is pleased with them, that he made them in his image and that sin has distorted that. But Jesus came to redeem that and to heal that. They don't know. And so like, we get to take it to them. And so he wants us to be joyful over the same things that he is joyful over. He wants us to know the joy of the Trinity and the love that exists there that we were created for. I was thinking as I was prepping about parents, like, I'm assuming this, this may not be true. I'm not a parent, I don't know, but I bet parents wish that they could get their kids to understand just how much you love them sometimes. Like you try, you tell them, you show them, you provide for them, you encourage them, you correct them, you discipline them, you train them up, you do everything you can, but I bet you always feel like they just don't get it. And I've heard people say whenever they start to have their own kids that they're like, oh, now I understand what my parents are trying to do for me because now I have my own. And they were trying to convey things to me that I wasn't getting just like my kid is not getting certain things. And it's kind of this like cyclical deal, I guess. But don't you wish you could just download it into them and they could be like, oh, dad thinks he enjoys me. He thinks I'm amazing. Sometimes that's why he's hard on me because he loves me. I don't even wish they could just understand it. And I feel like God is like the same thing in this passage. I feel like he's like, hey, there's so much going on here that I just want you to know. I, I just want to like download it into you. Exactly. Like a vine feeds all the water and nutrients into a branch. He's like, yes, let's just remain in each other. Let's be connected to each other and you'll start to understand just how much I love you and just how much I want you to flourish and just how heartbroken I am that sin has, has broken so much 
in our world, so much so that I'm willing to lay down my own life so that you could be healed and restored and that we could be together forever. I just want you to get it. I've told you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. What a, what a savior. What, I mean, I think connected to this is this verse, I think shows us a pattern that we see in the entire passage. As I kind of like bring this to a close that the, the unity of abiding means that we are the expression of him. Like the oneness that he has given us, we are an expression of his. So he, he says in, in verse 11, I want my joy to be in you so that your joy may be full. That you and I don't have to manufacture joy. His joy is in us and flowing through us. We don't have to muster that up. We just have to like let it be released in us. That abiding just naturally produces that within us. That all the things about himself that he has shared with us are a part of who we are. And he hasn't shared everything with us. He hasn't made us all-knowing. He hasn't made us omnipresent everywhere at once. But there are things about himself that he has shared with us. And in verse 11, Jesus talks about joy, but the whole passage, if we were to think about it, that's what he's saying is as a branch, I, I'm sharing my entire life as a vine with you as a branch. When Paul in Galatians 5 lists the fruit of the Spirit, it's not fruits, by the way, it's fruit. It's one fruit with all these different expressions. And he lists love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Sometimes those are things that, that I think we feel like we have to like muster up. And I, I am drawn very much to patience because we are like, oh, I, just, I gotta dig in. I gotta be patient. Oh, this traffic really tested my patience. People at work testing my patience. And kids, them kids, test my patience. Help me be patient. I think Jesus is like, you are patient. You don't, you don't have to try to become patient. You are patient because I am patient. Your true vine is patient. And his patience will flow into your life as a branch, showing up in the fruit of patience in your life. We don't have to muster it up. We don't have to manufacture it. We don't have to like say just the right thing or pray just the right prayers or do whatever it may be. It's, it's in us. Christ in me is the hope of glory. Christ in you is the hope of glory. It, it is there. All of those things, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control are all there. Abide in me and I in you. I've told you these things that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I've told you these things that my patience would be in you and that your patience would be full. We can apply all those things to this principle because the vineyard, that's exactly what's happening. That's the fruit that is produced. It is like, this is what God looks like. 
in our lives. It's not about mustering it up. It is about like, it's about us abiding so that it flows very naturally into our lives. It's about letting the vine dresser prune things out of our lives so that we are flourishing and bearing much fruit. In other words, grace. Grace is God doing for us what we cannot do on our own. That's how Dallas Willard defines it. In the life of the vineyard, it is about us as a branch letting the true vine do for us what we cannot do on our own, which is produce holy patience, holy self-control, holy kindness. And letting the vine dresser cut things out of our lives that are, are bad for us and things that do not belong so that we are bearing much fruit and flourishing so that we are proving to be his disciples so that people come by that vineyard and they're like, I want in. Come on in. I think one of the things that this passage has to remind us of is that we are not separate from him. That there is a unity he has given us. He goes on to pray for his disciples and all the, all the people that would be reached through their ministry, which is us. And he prays for oneness. Sometimes we think about unity being like, yeah, we need, to be, we need to be together in a horizontal sense. But where does that begin? It begins with the vertical unity. It begins with a bunch of branches connected to the same vine through the same grace and faith, through the blood that was shed on the cross. We have to think and realize that we and Jesus are, are not separate, but he dwells within us. That that's why we can be unified because Christ is the unifier among us. Apart from him, we can do nothing. From him, we can do anything. And when we're in sync with that reality, you know, you know what happens to sin? We stop seeing it as just kind of like our default of like, well, I'm a sinner and sinner sin. We're like, no, I'm not a sinner. My identity is not a sinner. My identity is one of a saint. I'm a branch connected to the true vine. So sin becomes something that's contrary to our nature, not a default behavior as a result of the old nature. And so we're like, why would I even do that? Why would I even participate in that? Why would I even give myself over to that? Why would I resist the vine dresser pruning that out of my life? Because it's just not me. When we're in sync with that reality, we start to even change our perspective on some of the things in our lives that maybe we used to embrace. And we get to the point where we're like, we welcome the cleaning of the vine. I mean, the cleaning of the branches. We welcome the pruning that he has for us because we recognize that that is the most loving thing that he can do for us so that we would bear much fruit. So he gave his disciples these words that they would bear fruit and bring glory to the Father. And that is how more people come into the vineyard. So when I come away from a passage you know, like this and a reality like this, I find my instinct is to find reasons why I'm an exception to it. Like I, I, it's easy for me to apply that to everyone else. But I'm kind of like, even, even as I'm speaking right now, just going through a checklist, 
You know, I'm like, well, what about this? What about this? Probably not because of this, 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 this. But I would champion anyone else believing that's what I'm doing. And you might be kind of the same way of like, man, it's almost like too good to be true. Yeah. But it is, you know. Perhaps that is a part of what God is communicating to us through passages like this. And then from start to finish, he's like, hey, I, I love you and I enjoy you and I'm all about your life flourishing. Maybe the longer we walk with him and the more we let the words of Christ dwell in us richly, that slow transformation starts to take root and gain some traction and some of that fruit starts to show up. And so I hope this has been an encouragement to you, even though some of these some of these things in the passage are hard. Remember, Jesus says, I've, I've told you this because I want your joy to be full. And the way that happens is that my joy lives in you and through you. And he has made a way for that to happen. And so this morning, maybe, maybe receiving communion is what you need to do to kind of connect some of those dots together. And so we have communion over to your right that is an option for you. You don't have to take it. Sometimes when you see people in a line, you just go join the line. You know, you don't have to. But if the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you, if taking that into your body and receiving that in faith is an act of obedience for you today, then that's an option. Maybe you, just, maybe you want to come and kneel and pray. Maybe you just want to sing. What, what kind of joyful expression is a good fit for you today? Um, we're going to give you a chance to do all those things right now. So let's stand together. Let me pray for us. God, as I uh, kind of just scan across the room, With this many people here, uh, only you are able to meet everyone right where they are. God, I'm always amazed in thinking about joy and just your countenance and you shining upon us and smiling upon us. I'm always amazed at your ability to see us for who we really are. And not get caught up in some of the other, like, the other things that we get hung up on. When I think about that prodigal son story of the father just, who was just ready to celebrate his son's act of obedience. And that's how you receive us with, as we said earlier, with open arms. And so these next few moments, I pray, God, that you would help us all to... Just to steward the things you're stirring within us. We don't really know what that might be. Across the room, but you know every one of us. And so as we sing and pray and receive communion and just honestly just have that togetherness and expressions of that unity, I pray that you would have your way among us. And we love you. We thank you for your, your kindness and your patience with us. And may you be honored in these next few moments as we respond.